We have inherited a big house, a great world house, in which we have to live together, black men and white men, Easterners and Westerners, Gentiles and Jews, Catholics and Protestants, Muslims and Hindus. I'm Dr. Claiborne Carson, director of the Martin Luther King Research and Education Institute here at Stanford University. And I'm Dr. Mira Foster, director of the Liberation Curriculum, our educational program here at the King Institute. I came to work for the Institute when Dr. Carson asked me to help develop lesson plans featuring some of the most important King documents. I was especially excited when we came up with the idea of doing a podcast. I'm a public historian by training, and it has always been my passion to make historical knowledge more accessible and more meaningful for the general public. The idea of talking with Clay Carson about Martin Luther King Jr. and discussing some of the most insightful documents that King left behind sounded like a great opportunity to open our research and our educational resources and make them freely and easily available to anybody interested in learning more about King, about his past, but also about his vision for our future. And the World House podcasts are designed to introduce you to the work of the King Institute, and in particular, the King Papers Project. This started more than three decades ago when Greta Scott King asked me to edit and publish a definitive edition of the papers of her late husband. Now, as you know, Mira, although King is perhaps the best-known American of the 20th century, we here at the King Institute have discovered many things um, that will probably be new to our listeners. And these podcasts reveal that there's still much that we can learn about this remarkable man. And in this episode, we're going to talk about King's childhood and formative years. Clay, I'm looking at the birth certificate, and it says... Michael King, and Michael is crossed out, and it says Martin in a handwritten um, writing. And then it also says that Michael was born on, on January 15th, 1929, in Atlanta. Let's talk about this document. Well, I think that the birth certificate is a wonderful document to start with because we find out where he was born on Auburn Avenue, um, and we find out that his father at that time um, went by the name Michael King, so he was Michael King Jr. Um, And, you know, expanding from that, we can discover that the home where he lived was owned by his grandfather, the Reverend A.D. Williams. Mm -hmm. And uh, just to fill in a little bit of background about him, is that he had arrived during the 1890s in Atlanta, um, not very much education. No, uh, I think he said he had $5 to his name when he arrived. Mm -hmm. But he was very ambitious, and he uh, found a congregation, very small, without a church, just uh, meeting in somebody's home. And 
he built that congregation of about a dozen people ultimately into uh, one of the leading congregations in Atlanta. Uh, so that by the early 20th century, he's become a successful uh, minister. Mm-hmm. Uh, he buys that home on Auburn Avenue. Uh, it's one of the finer homes for, especially within the black community of, of that time. And uh, it's, it's interesting to see that Martin is, uh, grows up in a home owned and purchased by his grandfather. Um, so when his grandfather dies, A.D. Williams dies in the early 1930s, and um, he grows up then in the home of his grandmother. Mm-hmm. And she has an important impact on his life. Uh, which he mentions in a document that we rely on a lot for understanding King's early life, and that is the Autobiography of Religious Development that he later writes when he goes to Crozier Theological Seminary, and he's given the assignment of, why did you decide to become a minister? Mm -hmm. And this leads him to um, uh, reflect on his life and his attitude, changing attitude toward religion. So this document... Uh, was written when he was about 20 years old, right? 20, 22? Around, around there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that when we look at this document, what we see is, first of all, the first words of the document. Is that, you know, he says that um, it was about growing up in the Great Depression. He says, well, I'm, I was too young to remember the beginning of this depression, but I do recall how I questioned my parents about the numerous people standing in bread lines when I was about five years of age. And he adds, I can see the effects of this early childhood experience on my present anti-capitalistic feelings. Well, you know, this is a remarkable document for someone uh, in his early 20s mm-hmm. to, to write and, and uh, to see that impact of, of seeing poor people, his father obviously was more affluent than most of the people in his congregation, mm-hmm. um, but uh, seeing that shaped his attitudes. You can see it um, many years later when he leads the Poor People's Campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that concern about poverty is a consistent um, theme in his life. Mm-hmm. We spoke about his grandfather. What about his father? Well, his father, um, Reverend, well, at that time, he's Michael King, mm-hmm. um, pretty much follows the same trajectory as uh, the grandfather. He arrives in Atlanta poor, poorly educated uh, in 1919, mm-hmm. um, barely literate uh, in terms of being able to write as well as read. Um, but he is a very ambitious person, he puts himself through uh, school, uh, grammar school at first, all the way through Uh, gains admission to um, Morehouse College. Um, But that's after he has an experience. He's walking down Auburn Avenue one day and he sees a young woman sitting on the porch and that is uh, the daughter of the Reverend A.D. Williams. And uh, so... uh, Alberta Williams. Alberta Williams, yes. Mm -hmm. And he tells his friend that uh, that's the woman I want to marry someday. Now, that probably seemed like an impossibility at that time. You know, here is the daughter of this prominent minister. 
He's uh, doesn't even have a church. Um, he's uh, still struggling, mm-hmm. um, but he has that ambition. He puts himself through um, Morehouse in part because his future father-in-law helps him get in. Uh, his, rather than rejecting the uh, this uh, young, ambitious minister, he kind of sees an earlier version of himself. Mm-hmm. And uh, so um, once he graduates from Morehouse, he's able to get married to Alberta Williams. And uh, this is in 1927. Uh, they have a daughter the next next year, and then um, uh, actually in 1929, that's when um, M.L. Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's uh, has the birth name of, of Michael, mm-hmm. and you know we could say a few words about how that name gets changed. I, I, right. th- I think the best uh, explanation is that. Uh, Reverend King goes to the World Baptist Convention mm-hmm. in 1933 and uh, changes his name shortly after that. And we can surmise that going to the birthplace of Protestantism in Germany, um, coming back, making that decision to change his name made sense, you know, to identify with the founder of Protestantism. Mm-hmm. And it just seems like a much more prestigious and unusual name than Michael King. Mm-hmm. And of course, um, M.L. Jr. becomes Martin Luther King Jr. So this is the, uh, the background of what we can gain from this uh, um, birth certificate. We, we find that he was born at home. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, most um, black children were born at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was un- unusual to be born in a hospital. Uh, so um, so all of this kind of gives us some insight of, of what it was like for um, ML Jr. Mm-hmm. Uh, to grow up in this in this atmosphere. You know, one of the things we find out from the autobiography also is the extent to which he admired his his father. Um, he saw his father as as uh, um, a someone who cared greatly about his, his family, mm-hmm. uh, someone who was b- willing to stand up to segregation. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the 1930s, just like A.D. Williams becomes a leader of the NAACP, um, president of the local um, branch of the NAACP. Uh, the same thing happens with uh, um, ML Sr. He becomes uh, a NAACP leader, mm-hmm. um, leads protests against segregation, leads protests designed to bring about equal salaries for black teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, just as his grandfather actually leads a political campaign in the 1920s that leads to the building of the high school that um, ML Jr. later attends. So one thing we can see is that here is a person who's growing up in a neighborhood where he knows that his family, his grandfather was a leader, his father was a leader. Mm -hmm. He grows up in the home that is owned by his grandmother. Mm -hmm. And that is reflected in the autobiography because uh, he actually spends more time talking about his grandmother about who told him stories about the family's background Mm -hmm. uh, than his own mother. 
um, but the focus really is is on his father and um, but it's not a completely um, easy relationship between the two mm -hmm. and we can see this um, when we see that during his uh, teenage years his religious doubts begin to appear he, he talked about how he shocked his Sunday school class by denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And you can just imagine, this is at age 13, here is the minister's son uh, questioning such a basic aspect of, of Christian theology. Mm -hmm. And he says, doubts began to spring forth unrelentingly. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so then the question becomes, how, how does he resolve these doubts? Yeah. What happens to those doubts? Well, I th again, we can see from the autobiography that they're resolved when he goes to Morehouse College. Mm -hmm. He enters Morehouse at the age of 15. Mm -hmm. um, and does he know he will become a minister? Not at that time. Yeah, he, he's, uh, he's 15 years old. Uh, he's probably um, in the midst of these doubts and, and thinks about becoming a lawyer or a doctor. Mm -hmm. um, but it's at Morehouse that he is exposed to two people who have a great impact on his life. Uh, perhaps next to his father, two of the greatest early in, um, influences come from Dr. Benjamin Mays. He's the president of Morehouse, mm -hmm. um, a person who is deeply religious, but also an intellectual, someone who inspires uh, Morehouse students, you know, there is this, that concept that he develops called the Morehouse man. Hmm. You know, that a person who is not only well-educated, but willing to use his, his education uh, for the betterment of the community. Mm -hmm. um, so he has those values from, and then he has a class with uh, uh, Dr. George Kelsey. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was a person I was able to meet later on um, in his life. And I could see why um, Martin would become, uh, begin to see him as, as a leader. Because like Benjamin Mays, George Kelsey was both deeply religious, but also an intellectual. Mm -hmm. Someone who had had advanced training in theology. And uh, taking... Kelsey's class on religion helped Martin shape his own views about religion, that he could be, he could question um, the literal fundamentalist interpretation mm -hmm. of the Bible mm -hmm. that his father might have favored, mm -hmm. and instead begin to see that theology is also a critique and, and a study of the Bible as a historical document. Mm -hmm. And this is something that, that appeals to him, and mm -hmm. he um, so it's during that time at Morehouse that he resolves those, those questions um, mm -hmm. that he um, had, had earlier and begins to develop his own approach to religion. And that helps him um, modify his, his goal of becoming maybe a lawyer or a doctor. Mm -hmm. um, and by the way, he was not an outstanding student at Morehouse. So he, the only A he gets is in George Kelsey's class. Mm -hmm. That's the only class that he seems to take really seriously. Um, and I guess we can forgive him. He's, he's only um, 
he graduates when he's 19 years old, so he's not that old. Mm-hmm. I think that's also the only class he talks about in his autobiography, right? There was the quote about uh, the meaning of the Bible. Yeah, he, he, George Kelsey says, behind the myths of the book, uh, the Bible, uh, there are great truths that have enduring value. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that helped um, Martin see that there was more to the, to the Bible and to religion than his father's, what he called, more fundamentalist view mm-hmm. of, of Baptist faith. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think it's during these years that he, he gradually moves toward that, and we see that uh, the crucial decision mm-hmm. comes when he goes to work on a tobacco farm like a lot of other uh, Morehouse men. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a men's college. Um, they went in their summers and worked in a con- Connecticut tobacco farm where they could earn some extra money to bring back to school. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's between his junior and senior years that he goes to um, Connecticut and makes that decision. Uh, partly because he sees that he's best prepared for that role, mm-hmm. um, that that's where his best qualities. Uh, one of the things I haven't mentioned is he's a very skilled orator. Mm-hmm. Uh, he probably learns that by being in church and uh, watching his father preach and watching the great uh, preachers who come through as guest ministers at, at uh, Ebenezer Church. Um, he has uh, one of his most vivid experiences that he remembers uh, comes after he wins an oratory, or at least he, I think he wins the oratory contest, so uh, that he uh, is coming back on, on a bus and he's mm-hmm. uh, forced to sit at the back of the bus. Mm. And he later recounts that that he had never been that angry mm-hmm. um, before, um, and and I think that what we see um, developing is that oratorical skill, yeah. the preaching skill, uh, his own uh, individual approach, and his desire to uh, mm-hmm. become both an intellectual and a, a religious leader. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what he takes away from from Morehouse. Mm. Let's go back to his childhood and talk a little bit about his encounter with segregation and racism. What do we know about that? Well, we know a lot just from what he uh, recounts. Uh, we, you know, he talks about certain episodes about going into a shoe store with his father, mm-hmm. being asked to um, sit at the back of the store. Some. Uh, Presumably, so the white customers do not see that he's being, um, you know, served. And and I think after that, his he says, "I'd never seen my father so angry as when he walked out of the store and said, mm. unless unless you treat us like anyone else, we're not going to buy any shoes here.'" And another on another occasion, a policeman stops his father um, and refers to him as a boy. Mm-hmm. And uh, Daddy King, you know, that's the name that most people refer to, mm-hmm. King Senior, uh, points to his son and says, you know, that's a boy. I'm a man, and unless you refer to me as a man, I'm not going to listen to you. Mm. So he sees how his father is willing to take the risk of standing up um, 
and uh, you know, and he he says that there were times when uh, during his teenage years where he really worried about his father because his father was leading protest marches in mm -hmm. in Atlanta, um, demanding the end of segregation in, in the city offices, uh, um, at least in city hall, and uh, also he was leading a movement to gain equal salaries mm -hmm. for black teachers. And uh, in both of these cases, it was a controversial role, and, but he sees his father both in this role of being a civil rights leader and being a minister, mm. uh, just like his, his grandfather, who was also a leader of the NAACP. Mm -hmm. uh, his, his father was probably even more central to the NAACP because it was a much smaller organization back in 1919 where Reverend A.D. Williams actually invited the National um, uh, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People to hold their annual convention in Atlanta, uh, which was unprecedented to hold the civil rights gathering in the South. Hmm. Um, but he was able to do that in, in uh, um, the years to, after World War One. So, in summary, I would say that that most of the formative experiences um, from Martin Luther King happen not just in Atlanta, mm -hmm. but really on Auburn Avenue. Mm -hmm. Because if you go there today, you can go to his birth home and see where his grandfather lived, mm -hmm. where he lived for the first um, dozen, um, 11 or 12 years of his life. But you can walk a block down the street, there's Ebenezer Church, and understand that this was the church that was built by his grandfather, mm -hmm. Reverend A.D. Williams, and that um, this was the church where his own father preached for many years. And then if you continued down the street, the old headquarters of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference mm -hmm. is is there, all within a few blocks mm -hmm. of one another. And uh, so even though Martin Luther King's life takes him ultimately all over the world, in many places in the world at least, and makes him a person who has global prominence, mm -hmm. his life really stays centered in this very small area of Atlanta. Mm -hmm. uh, from his birth in 1929 to his death in 1968. Mm -hmm. um, and his funeral is held right at Ebenezer Church. Mm -hmm. uh, so so much of that life, um, those crucial formative experiences take place right there on Auburn. I think one way of, of wrapping up this is, is the way he ends his uh, autobiography of religious experience. And that is, he says that, even though I've never had an abrupt conversion experience, religion has been real to me and closely knitted to life. In fact, the two cannot be separated. Religion for me is life. Hmm. I can't think of a better way of summarizing Martin Luther King's early life. So by 1948, King graduates from Morehouse, and at this point, he knows he wants to become a minister. What happens next? Well, I think you might guess where we're going next in the next episode. Um, 
and that is that he wants to become an intellectual as well as a minister. So what that meant for him is going off to a theological seminary. And uh, this is not something his father probably would have recommended, because neither his father or grandfather had been to a seminary. Um, but for uh, Martin Jr., this was a necessary part of his ambition. And we'll talk about that in the next episode. All right. You listen to Claiborne Carson and Mira Foster in the World House. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more about King's early years, visit the Liberation Curriculum on our website at kinginstitute.stanford.edu.